everyone and welcome to another Scotsway podcast. And for this podcast we're joined once again by David Keenan. Hello David. Hey Alistair, how are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. Brilliant. And we're going to talk about your new novel, um, For the Good Times. So I think the best thing to do is just to get you to tell us a little bit about For the Good Times. You know, it's a book that has been sustained for a long, long time. When I was a kid, um, and I always wanted to be a writer and I always thought I'd, I always thought I'd write a book about Airdrie which was my first book, this is Memorial Device, which was my idea that I wanted to show how a small town experience could be magical and, and not as cliched, like this more sort of existence. And the other thing I always knew I would write about would be the Troubles and the IRA and growing up in the Ardoin in, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, because that's where my father actually came from. My mm-hmm. father was uh, born in the Ardoin. Um, he left in the late 60s as the troubles were beginning and we joined the Merchant Navy then eventually moved to Scotland when he met my mum but the rest of the family stayed and we wouldn't go over to Belfast at the height of the troubles it was just mm-hmm. it was too crazy and too dangerous but we would often have visitors the family would quite often come over and stay in the Airdrie to get away take a break and they would sit up in the loft and my dad my dad and his brothers had a way of dressing and a certain look which really inspired me early on. I mean, kind of like a little bit similar to my look. You did, I guess, a lot of rings, a lot of gold rings, a lot of chains, always wearing suits, would always be wearing Old Spice, looked kind of sharp. But they were also, most of them were illiterate. Mm-hmm. Most, I mean, my dad couldn't really read or write and most of his brothers couldn't either. Um, but... They, they had this incredible faith in language. They were right. in love with language and they could tell a story better than anyone. So early on, I would I would just listen to their stories, their stories of what it was like during the Troubles, the story of how hard it was to survive, to rise above that situation, and the language they used and the way they told it and the way they interspersed it, you know, with jokes, with songs. My dad's brothers were all singers, big Como men as well. So there'd be a song, there'd be a circuitous aside that had nothing to do with what they were actually telling you. Then there'd be an interruption for a couple of jokes. Then we'd go back to the story, which may or may not actually be true. You always thought, are these guys making this yeah, up? Because sure, sure. it seems so mad and wild. So the language really attracted me to it and the, the way of telling a story, the way that a telling of a story in the hands of an Irishman becomes a performance. Mm-hmm. And I love that because I like the performance of the stories and I'm interested in, I'm always interested in energy, how you energise, how you tell a story with energy, how you mm-hmm. turn it into a performance. So all my life I knew I'm going to write a book about these guys. Also because they were kind of like, to me they were like the Irish Sopranos. Yeah. They had that kind of atmosphere and that kind of feel and that kind of danger sure. as well actually around some of these guys. You knew they were, they were tough guys and I really, really, um, I really admired them. And they would send me like Christmas cards and birthday cards and it was like they were guessing how grammar worked like commas after every word some words underlined some words made up mm-hmm. strange rhythms and it struck me as more beautiful than a lot of poetry sure. and, and so I, I wanted to incorporate that sort of it, it, it's not an experimental grammar at all but it, it intersects with Irish modernist ideas of playing with syntax and playing with storytelling and it intersects in a way where you see there's a common ground between Irish modernism and sort of street tellings and folk tellings and I love the tension between those two things so that was a big thing for me I thought I'll write it and I want to play with that language and take it that same place where my, my uncles were able to take it I think that's fascinating because what I got from the book straight away is that these characters feel real these are like they're not I mean obviously it's fiction but mm-hmm. The words, I mean, the difficult thing I would have thought was to get the words coming out of the mouth. And now that you've said how close you are with that whole culture and you know, your background, it completely makes sense mm-hmm. because um, there's phrases and there's ways of speaking. And as you say, there's a there's a love of language and a shared language and almost 
like, um, I mean, they're a gang, as you say. Oh, absolutely. It's gangsterism, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, uh, and often within gangs, they, they form their own shorthand, yeah. like a literary shorthand or, or linguistic shorthand, uh-huh. and that's exactly what these guys have got. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I thought, oh, this is going to be difficult to get this absolutely right, to get the ear right, but right from the first, you know, page, you think, yeah, this is a guy who has heard these people speak and understands how they speak. But I also, also thought, is it because you have this, I, mean, I know how much you, you, you love your music, have you got an ear for the way that people speak and the way that people express themselves? I mean, I do think so, I do think so. My car- I mean, in my experience, the two books I've written so far, t- the characters seem real to me. Yeah. Because what happened is they behaved in ways that I was not fully under control. You know, they would do things that would surprise me. And in a way, you know, I let those guys run on a sort of murder spree. They, just, they sort of started off and I kind of let them go and I began to get appalled. And some of the some of the sections where it's a sort of just this litany of all these, all, all the violence per- performed literally on, on, on other people in Ireland I mean I felt as if these characters had had a life of their own and were off doing this and I was kind of reporting back a little bit about just what I saw them do but one of the most important things for me is always rhythm always rhythm I I, I feel that I have the character right when I understand the rhythm that they're talking in so again the sentences were very experimental at points they're rolling on there's a stream of consciousness because it is this endless telling that the Irish have other times it's more clipped and aggressive when we're trying to relay something violent and so it was just a question of getting in exactly how these um it's like Charles Olsen's idea of the breath. That's a big thing for me because he would talk about how poetry was revolutionised by, by lines that ran the length of the breath. Absolutely, I totally understand that. But again, I don't think it's a particularly modernist thing. I think if you listen to a good working class teller, you know they'll have, they'll have the understanding of breath, the pause, how to deliver the punchline. And it's like... I'm very interested in Kabbalah because I'm very interested in the power of reality of of words and language Mm -hmm. to transform reality. And it strikes me that Pater is a form of working class Kabbalah. And it's an an intense faith in language. It's like if you can just deliver the joke, if you can tell the story perfectly, even get the rhythms, even get the pauses there, then somehow um, the moment has been salvaged. And then that struck me as a sort of religious belief in the power of the word, faith. You know, so then I wanted to bring in this religious backdrop as well, which was very important. And because the whole book in itself is about ways of telling who owns the story, whoever tells the story kind of defines the reality. And so throughout the book, there's multiple tellings. There's Irish, there's Irish jokes. There's a comic strip version. Mm-hmm, yeah. And even at points, I wanted the book itself to seem as if the book was spontaneously speaking. There's a couple of times during the book when they say something like, the Europa is a mighty fortress. And, and Sammy actually says, who said that? It's like the book itself is becoming, yeah, it's yeah. starting to tell the story as well. So I wanted all these sort of um, multiple tellings, you know, trying to claim the story for themselves. And that whole idea of telling stories or telling jokes or in, whether it's pubs or whether it's uh, clubs or whatever it is, there has to be a kind of confidence in the way that you deliver it because if you fall flat, totally if the storyteller falls flat, then you're in trouble, you know. That's you totally true. Or you're, you, so... What I love about that, it is a performance, yes. but it's a, it's a, and it's a performance which is knife edge. Yes, it can go totally. one way or the other. I mean, we've yep. all been in places where that's the case. Yep. So, um, your your family. I mean, what do you remember about that? I mean, what was what were the surroundings? Was it in the house or was it? because you must have been fairly young I would imagine yeah, I was it was always in the house and it, well that's I mentioned it was in the loft because what would happen is that quite often when people came to stay was they stayed in the loft 
and it sort of gave me. I mean, I'm a, I'm an inventor of stories myself. Uh, I when I was a kid, I felt as if this is a what a big thing memorial device was about. That I kind of lived in a little bit of a magical world where mm-hmm. it seemed like anything was possible. Anything was possible, and so to me, I mean, really, my dad's uncles when they came over to me, they were gangsters on the run, yeah. and they were hiding out in this loft to escape the heat, you know. And then they would teach me all these things. I mean, for me, it was very much. My dad's uncles, my dad, my dad's uncles, and Perry Como were the, 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 the early sort of masculine role models for me, definitely. That was my initiation into masculinity. I mean, like my uncle Sammy would actually, he mean, I remember, totally remember him teaching me how to throw a punch. Yeah. And that's the advice, you know, you keep your arm loose to the last moment. And when I became a boxer, that is totally true, you know, that, that I learned all these type of things. So it, it very much felt to me like an initiation into manhood and the responsibilities of manhood as well, because... These guys were complex characters. My father was an, an incredibly complex character because, on the one hand, he's a tough guy. He's a street fighter, mm-hmm. uneducated street fighter, worked in a shoe shop. And um, I saw him, I mean, I had, a, as a kid, some fairly traumatic uh, violence I saw with my dad. I mean, I did, go, I remember being in... Um, Sometimes I say it's Isle Man, sometimes I say it's uh, it's uh, Butte. I can never, because they were the yeah. two islands we hold, you don't sure. know what. But it was either Rossi or, or in Douglas, and we were playing the Penny Falls, you know, where the, the, the pennies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We ran an arcade. We, 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 me and my brother, Peter, and me went out with my dad, while my mum was washing her hair, and my sister was getting her makeup on. And we said, oh, we'll get in the front and play the puggies and stuff like that. And we're playing these Penny Falls, and... Um, it's an old granny playing next to us, and it looks like her falls are about to tip, and just as they are, this guy who's been a phone starts kind of nudging in here as if to claim that falls is going to fall. And all my dad did was he put his arms on the on the machine so the guy couldn't push in any, any further. And the guy did not mean to do this, but the guy lifted his arm away and in doing so accidentally skiffed his hand against mm. my dad's head, which my dad took as mm. a punch. And my dad turned around and he punched the guy so hard that he went through the window of the arcade, landed in the glass and the blood outside. And I can remember the feeling of awe and terror yeah, mixed absolutely. together that, that my father was capable of this and it was so violent and dramatic. And I remember another guy went to grab him and said stop it man you'll kill him I always remember those words and my dad saying I'll even kill you if you don't get your hands off me and then me and my brother uh, 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 and my dad my dad grabbed him and said run and I remember running down the high street on holiday and then a, a siren coming and we jumped in a, 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 a little alleyway to hide and we got out and ran back to uh, to meet my mum and on the way back my dad said tell your mother nothing so I hadn't even mentioned that he knocked this guy yeah, through a plate yeah, glass yeah. window earlier that night. And in fact, it was only at my father's funeral, which was in t- January 2013, that I, I told this story as a part of the speech that I did. Yeah. The first time my mother had ever heard that he'd knocked that guy through a window that night. <laughs> so, I mean, it was... A, but having said that, what I, when, when I say my father was a complex character, um, he, you know, he... he, he he loved me completely yeah. and he was gentle and soft he wasn't an unemotional he wasn't the type of tough guy that wasn't in, ch- in, uh, in command of his uh, feminine side or of his ability to love I mean he, I had no doubt that I was deeply loved by my father he would say things like an angel touched you in the head when you were born yeah. or you're my golden boy or, or and the last birthday card he ever wrote to me he said always remember you are a very special person with a comma after every word but I mean beautiful things to say and he would hug me and kiss me I'd sit on his knee he would listen to to Como so it was was a very positive role model because he taught me to be tough and to be able to handle myself from an early age which I could but also not to be some kind of meathead cliche and one of the big things I learned from him was not 
not to make other people afraid. Mm-hmm. That's a big, that's a good thing about ma- about masculinity. That when you're around somebody like that, you never feel afraid. But also not to unnecessarily terrify anyone else either. Yeah. Big yeah. lessons, you know. So I mean, what you said there is, is right at the centre of the book. You've got commentary on um, masculinity in all its forms, mm-hmm. from the, mm-hmm. the two extremes. You mm-hmm. can say exactly. I mean, the the worst violence you can pretty much imagine, all the way to. Um, a kind of understanding of or trying to understand himself better and also understand others and have that um, a consideration for others which at the beginning you think well you know where is this character going how is he going to be um, was that what you said to do then was it to comment on masculinity or did you want to tell a story and that through the story that's came out yeah, because I mean, I don't think of it as strictly a book about the IRA or the Troubles. I yeah. don't. I think no, that's the setting. Just the same way that post-punk and Erdrey was the setting for Memorial Device. There's yeah. a lot more stuff going on there. One of the big themes is certainly Fathers and Sons. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And also how cycles of violence are perpetuated yeah. and how difficult it is to uh, break these things. Because it's also, again, about stories. You know, there's a line that says, uh, in Ireland, history is not written, it's remembered. Yeah. And according to who remembers it and yeah. what they remember yeah, yeah, yeah. as well. And the impossibility of forgetting because one of the things is one of the superpowers that one of the superheroes has he claims is forgetting but ultimately that is a superpower and a fantasy because it's impossible for the Irish to forget in terms of these so I wanted to talk about these cycles how they keep on going on and on that was definitely very important and also um uh, how violence itself can be the initiatory potential of violence. I felt like I was initiated into violence by my father. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, violence is terrible, but there's it, there's undeniably an attraction to violence. Why do we love violent films so much? Why do we watch like The Sopranos or Goodfellas and things? And lo- why do we um, put criminals on pedestals as outlawness? Because there is an appeal. There's something about violence, which it's a power, which in a way all of us as human beings will have to deal with at some point, even if we're just in the fringes of it, even if we're just hearing about it. So I wanted to show the initiatory power of the, of, uh, 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 of violence. And I always remember a quote by freelance paramilitary describes himself, how ridiculous. Michael Stone, mm-hmm. who the guy who, who bombed the Milltown Cemetery yeah, during yeah. The, the funeral of the IRA guys that had been um, uh, assassinated by the SAS in Gibraltar. And, I mean, he has, he, I mean, he has a fascinating character. I've read a lot about him and he has this line where he says, like, I didn't choose violence. Violence chose me. And it becomes like this monolith, this ineluctable fact that some people are are, are targeted by, that some people are taken over by. And so I wanted to show how these guys go from kind of being like, kind of like looking like the suave guys in their community into this spiral of gangland violence. And um, what happens with masculinity during that is you realise that masculinity itself becomes a performance. And it's often performed for other men. And then it becomes a competition yeah. for masculinity. So all that what happens in this book is when the paranoia starts kicking in, everyone's in a way Sammy's worried that he, is he not dangerous enough? Mm-hmm. Is he yeah. not enough of a threat? You know, was Tommy more dangerous? Was um, um, is your Mandel Brogan more dangerous? You know, who's the most dangerous? Who's the most masculine? He's almost disappointed when it turns out that he's not really the focus of anything. You know, and so uh, the way that masculinity becomes a display for other men. It's quite, yeah. you know. And you, I mean, you mentioned the, the Sopranos, and there are, you know, I was thinking Scorsese, definitely, mm-hmm. but particularly Goodfellas, when you've got scenes like the one where uh, the poor guy gets shot in the foot, you know, like that, it's, it's a raising mm-hmm. of masculinity because they're laughing at him. Yeah. He can't take the, the Joe Pesci character, yeah. can't take being laughed at, so it all goes out of hand and becomes, because he has to prove himself yes. as him to be, I'm, I could be the last man standing in this room. And there's, there's definitely a, a section of that in there but there's also 
there's a need that they all feel, I think, to belong. Yes. And they want to be in this group and belong to something, whether it's the IRA or just even their own gang of four. Um, but there are also moments where it's self-reflection, particularly with Sammy, or self-reflection and wanting to be an individual and wanting to stand out alone. So it's that what you were talking about, the thing that your dad seems to have put in you is, you know, be strong, but be yourself. Yes. You know, that, that sort of thing. Um, and I think... To set that in Ireland at that time is particularly interesting because the public image, certainly what we got over here on the mainland where it was less nuanced than I'm imagining it would be in Belfast, was, you know, men with balaclavas on both sides and that was just about it. It was almost like you were covering identity instead of the yes. people losing their identity. They weren't celebrating their individual identity. What Sammy does through all sorts of different ways, his love of comics, yep. his, his love of a woman, yep. all of these things... Mark him out says, no, I will not be ingrained into this. I can be my own person. And you know, his superhero name is the Anomaly. Yeah. You know, so there's an attempt. Can he like, can he transcend these type of things? But also, one of the big themes of the book is alter egos. That you're almost in a war zone or a place like that. You need to create an alter ego almost to survive. So all of these men battling with each other are battling with their alter egos. And so I want to underline that with the comic book alter egos as well. You know, you have someone else out there in the world who stands in for you as a sort of proxy in order to allow you to survive in this very difficult situation. But the reason they all look up to Tommy is at one point they start to realise... Was Tommy the only guy without an alter ego? And there's something, and this is not a moral triumph for Tommy's. It's, it's another anomalous thing because even though he didn't seem ultimately to have any morals, and perhaps on every side in a way, and um, without giving too much away, at the same time, they marvel because they're like, Tommy was Tommy 100%, no matter what he was doing, no matter which side he was on, he was Tommy 100%. He was the only one of us who didn't need an altered ego to survive, which is why they look up to him in a way. You know what I mean? Or did he though? Yeah. Because then he seems to look up to the Armandale Brogan quite a bit. Obviously, Como's a big hero as well. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes with Tommy also. Tommy seems flawed. We see moments of him like, we Robin in the comic shop sees him break down, but he only allows himself to break down in front of a woman. No man sees him break down yeah. or even show emotions for all the terror and trauma that they're going through at that point. But it's you know? that bravado, it's that wanting to be in control of, of, of this. I mean, it's a performance, as you say, right? It's absolutely a performance right across yeah. the board. And I think what's the best thing about Sammy's in, internal dialogue is you see the other side of that. You see... The, the the mask slip for want of a better term because he's saying see this the, what I put out to Tommy and the rest of them is not really who I am mm-hmm. and I want to find out who I am yes um so have you had what kind of I mean the, the book's just come out it's been out for a week a week, a week yeah. now yeah and it's had great reception so far amazing. as I can see totally amazing um have you had any negative reception? What I mean by that is, it is a controversial subject, a time, place. I mean, even now, with the current um, Brexit um, uh, and the talking about hard borders and all this stuff, there's people saying, oh, but it'll be a return to the troubles. Have you had any kind of negative um, feedback? Or, or? No, I, ha- I mean, I haven't. I mean, I've, I've seen the odd comment, good. not directed at me particularly, but just comments like these people are murdering scum and things like that. And you know what? My book my, my book doesn't say otherwise. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think that this book 
um, it's not even it's not particularly about taking a side either. I just oh, wanted no. to see what it felt like to be in the troubles with real people in the troubles. Exactly, not balaclava clad siphons or whatever you know ciphers. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see what it was really like in terms of that. Um, and yeah, yeah, it's not taking any kind of. Um, yeah, I'm not trying to take any stand whatsoever. And what I'm trying to say in a way is that I wanted to show these guys who are IRA members as being non-ideological. Yeah. It just so happened that's where they grew up. So that was the side they were on. A lot of people, when they see these things, like to say, well, I would have taken a moral stance. I would have been on this side or I would have been against violence. I doubt it. I think 85% of most people find their loyalties according to what tribe they're a part of. And that is absolutely true. And that's a political thing as much as it is a thing about a religious thing. All these. So, in a way, this could easily have been a book where the characters were on the UVF. Yeah. Absolutely. No problem that could have been that. It just was, I just did not have the information or the confidence to be able to talk about that fully. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's true. But so um, I have to say, when I finished the book, I tell I said, you know, Michael Stone said he was, you know, violence chose him. The, the troubles and, and for the good things this book chose me undoubtedly. I did not decide. I always felt that it was my destiny to write this book ever since I was a kid. The same way I felt about Memorial Device for the Erdry one as well. So when I finished it though, and we'd done the edit and I realised it was going to it'd gone to print and we had a proof. I think I kinda did suddenly realise that I'd sort of I'd slept walked my way into this and I was like, oh bloody hell, I've written a book about troubles. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> what who, have I done? Yeah, who would choose this? Who would choose to have to put through it? Because it's I I know it's a contentious area, but then I began to think this was completed a few years ago. So well before uh, you know Anna Burns won the book are you know and she come Anna's from the Ardoin at the same time as well mm-hmm. although her book is very different mm-hmm. and it's take it's complementary I think we I think we work quite well together but I'd written it without any knowledge that there was going to be a sort of Belfast moment yeah. which does seem to be happening you've got Michael Hughes's book Country and things like this as well and you've got a lot of great new writers coming up like uh, Wendy Erskine things like this so I began to wonder you know what have we finally have we, has there been finally enough time since the end of the troubles that you know, there has to be a gap, there has to be a break before you can uh, you can approach these things that are historically, politically and culturally raw? And I began to think maybe there's enough time now. Maybe we can finally go back and start telling these stories. Because there's also one of the things, this idea, this threat that you write about the troubles, you're going to get in big trouble, you'll disturb one of the sides. Well, I think we have to be brave enough to stand up yeah. and say, no, no, it's time to speak these words. We won't be killed into not speaking about it and we want to talk about it now. And actually, it's such a mind-boggling thing that happened in the troubles. Mind-boggling. When I think back, my memories and the stories I was told, it was, it was a place where reality itself was up for grabs. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's incredible. Sometimes... Like Memorial Device, I think sometimes fiction is the only thing that can truly get close to the psychic reality of what it felt to be literally bombarded mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis in Ireland with this violence, you know, this thing that well, you're, well, you're kind of, you're attracted to it, you, you can't take your eyes off it on the one hand, but it's horrifying in the other way. I wanted to capture that, and because it seems like a sort of autonomous zone, that's the places I love to set my books, where reality itself seems like it's up for grabs on a daily basis. And all the big themes that I love and I'm interested in, rising above your circumstances, everyday transcendence, what faith means, promises, the uh, uh, suffering, the promise of religion, masculinity, men on men, uh, the seduction of violence, all these things were heightened during the troubles yes. because they were real. They were faced on a day-to-day basis. That's why I was so. That, that's why I was so drawn to setting fiction yeah. there. You know, because when I heard that you were writing this book and where it was going to be set, and without knowing that you had such close links to the place, I did kind of go, 
good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, mate, thank you. Yeah, you know, I know. I've known as little guy, you know, it's okay. Yeah. And, then, uh, and then I started to think when I was reading it, uh, again, not knowing how close you were to it, I was thinking, I wonder if you ever thought about setting this in, you know, gangs in Glasgow or gang, even out in Airdrie and Copenhagen and stuff like that, because there's still the same... Uh, masculinity and questions of belonging and gangs and all the same things that you deal with here but you take it up another level you you take the kind of tension up another level by setting it in this place and with these people because what might have been knife fights over here were bombs yeah, or massacres and, you know, yeah, and massacres yeah. and you know Assassinations. Uh, governments killing their own people yes, and all of that absolutely stuff. Um, so let's talk a bit about the influence of Perry Coleman. You mentioned it right at the beginning. Again, this was a touch that I thought, this is true, this rings true. Because I think if someone was trying to come up with this, they would have gone Sinatra or Dean Martin or one of the, totally. the you know, Rat Pack or something like that. But um, Perry Como and I was thinking, oh God, what do I have to think about Perry Como? I had to go away and listen to some of his music and look at some of the pictures and went, oh, I get it. Because when then you get the picture of these guys exactly. in their suits mm. and that you're know, absolute dapper, abs- mm. and it's not a um, the Scorsese side of it. It's very much their own style. It is totally, and um, that is true. And it's funny because I think when I first submitted the manuscript, I remember somebody at, at Faber saying the Perry Como thing. I mean, that that it just doesn't. It it, it seems weird. And I'm like, well, that's funny because it, it's genuinely true. Yeah. It is true. I mean, my father and uh, all my uncles, and not just time when I was over for the Belfast launch of the book last week, and I was meeting other family members, other friends, they all love Como. Como was so important there. And on the one hand, I loved the contradiction. I was fascinated by the contradiction because uh, Como did seem to hold up a sort of dissonant mirror to my dad and his uncles because they would always look up to him like he was, they would talk about him like he's a saint. Yeah, they would yeah, say yeah. things like, Como never drank. Never, never. You never had a cuss word out that guy's lips. He was always faithful to his wife. All the things that my dad and his uncle and my uh, uncles never were. Every saying word was a cuss word with them. They were all boozers. They all philandered. You know what I mean? I mean, again, it was, it's telling stories that they might not actually be true, but they're going to tell them as if they were true. Oh, aye, totally. And so they held him up as this kind of myth that they, they sort of aspired to. Um, but the, the the other thing that I loved about Como was the, I think early on. When I was growing up, Como was was the, uh, my dad was like pre rock and roll, you know. He, yeah. he missed rock and roll yeah, almost yeah, completely. Yeah. Loved Como, played Como all the time, and um, I went through a phase. Obviously, I got into like punk rock and stuff like that, and I began to think, God, my dad's he listens to a lot of sentimental crap. He really, he really does. But then you know, when I when I rediscovered Como again, I mean, that stuff is heavy. Mm-hmm. He's singing about archetypal human situations, and he's singing them with this kind of they call it easy listening. And it's true, but it's easy as an ineluctable. Mm-hmm. It's easy as an elemental. You know, I always say Como's not an interpreter of songs. Como records the Ur version from which all other versions deviate. You know, he records the one unchangeable one. He doesn't interpret, he nails the sort of Rosetta Stone of every of every track that he sings. And it's beautiful. I mean, because of all that's happened with me and my family and uh, my dad dying and my relationship to Como. I find it very hard to listen to Como. Yeah, I bet. Very, I bet. very hard. You, you know, and I just, I just did a thing, for enough, I did a thing for, I wrote a thing for The Quietest, and now I've done a, like my top 15 Como tracks for The Wire, which is quite funny, getting like <laughs> Como and like an avant-garde experimental monthly magazine, Brilliant. Dreams Come True. But I had I, I had to listen to a lot, because I wanted to really get my 15 that moved me the most. And I can be honest, I was, I was, I was choked up on yeah. every single track, and I found it incredibly difficult. Going, yeah. I mean, we played the song for the good times that it's named after. 
that and it's impossible are probably my two favourite Como performances. Um, but um, we played for the good times at my dad's funeral, so I have all there's all these layers of association. And um, actually, on the front of the book, that is actually my father. Right, okay. the one wearing the, the 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 Mickey Mouse ears and the mask is actually my dad. He is actually in the back as well. Because ah. again, I wanted to underline it and have that personal aspect that I'm also dealing with a sort of legacy of violent masculinity and things like that also and coming to terms with that and Como's the soundtrack to that and it was always funny because my dad was a foul mouthed guy and in the best way great language and a tough guy but he he expected more from entertainers Yes, you know yes, what I mean. Yeah. He Aye. expected more from them. He's like, you, can't, you don't just talk like me if you're on the you're on the London stage. You gotta bring a little bit of style and respect. And I always remember, and I, I used a version of this. I turned it into Patty Smith. There's a section in the the uh, book where they go down to Dundalk to like um, to uncover this uh, buried arms deal, and they're staying in a caravan park. And they're singing, listening to old rock and roll and stuff like that. And then a song comes on, and they're talking about somebody pissing in a river. It's obviously Patty Smith yes, pissing in yeah. a river or And uh, Tommy gets furious. He's like, I wouldn't sit here and listen to this, these swear words. So I'm going to put that radio off. And this is, this is, an, this is a, a true story because one night, me and my mum, my mum actually, she wasn't into like rock and roll when she was younger. But when she, when she got older, she had a. We used to drive to Edinburgh and I'd make up like, compilation cassettes for us to play. Sure. And she heard April Skies by the Jesus and Mary Jane for the first time. And she was listening to like Loretta Lynn and Tell Me on a Sunday and all this, and Lena Martell and all this genuine crap. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, she was blown away by April Skies. She was like, what is this? I've never heard anything like this. So I was like, well, if you like that, you should listen to this group called The Velvet Underground. Fair in love with it. Life changing. Then I was like, okay, you should go read solo. And that was it. My mum said... Opened up this world. Oh, I opened up. I always remember my mum saying, if, if I hadn't married her father, I'd have married Lou Reed. And I was like, <laughs> what a combo, these two guys. And so every time Lou Reed ever played in, in, in Scotland, from the 80s until Lou Reed died, me and my mum went right. to his concert every single time. So it became fanatics. And I remember one night we were watching a live video of Lou Reed, and I think it was on... Uh, uh, I think it was in New York. Um, it was a the live New York video, and he's singing that... Um, sort of bustle of faith and we're watching with my dad and it comes to the line and he says something like uh, they'll shit in a river dump battery acid in a stream that's right and, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. my dad leapt up and I raged and, he, and, he, and he, his words were I wouldn't sit here and listen to that fucking language <laughs> and then walked out the room you know and I always remember that instant and I was like wow what is a weird distant thing my father has with this but you've got because it's set in the, mainly in the 70s yep and uh, so obviously that's done because of the time and place but also that's the time when things I would imagine it was it would be the same in, in Scotland and also but it's probably the same in Ireland where what had been the, the hippie movement perhaps elsewhere the tail end of it was now starting to come through so you had folk with long hair strung guitars and clubs exactly. and folk going What's this? This isn't music. The get your cut, get your, you know, it wasn't just about the music. They refused to listen to oh, that. Aye. It was the look. It was everything that aye. they were against. I mean, I wanted to have that that very that clash of generations because it did strike me that. Um, in the seventies and eighties, you know, when I had issued the Green Book and things, which is all about this instructional book for for uh, volunteers. Um, Things were becoming a little bit more ideological. You were getting people involved in uh, in. Um, 
and the Republican movement who were socialists, who saw it as a socialist movement. But to me, I mean, to me, um, the Republican movement and all that was never a revolutionary movement. It was a rebellion, ultimately. There's a lot of different people in, under that one, under these auspices. Yeah. But so I wanted to show this clash between these different people. The people who are caught up in it just because their, their community is under siege and maybe they indulge themselves in gangsterism. And then these ideological people, these hippies, these punk rockers all coming in together a little bit because, you know, I would always see them, the, the, you know... Uh, I wanted to have that thing about there was, in the book there's a woman pa- walking past the, the Sinn Féin where there's the mural of Bobby Sands and I'll have her say oh he was some man but could he know like he got a haircut and got a jumper to film do you know what I mean because yeah, it was these new, these new hippies that were sort of appalling the older generation yeah, yeah. Who, who were becoming a very radical part of the Republican movement at the time and I wanted to show that clash and the confusion between an ideological approach and these guys who are just protecting communities and extorting people well, like, you any, know any uh, army or movement or rebellion has its kind of ideologues and its, its soldiers and, it, and, and, and its soldier and, and its gangster yeah, and its gangster absolutely. element which yeah, is yeah, an yeah, ine- yeah. inevitable accompanies all this kind of stuff yeah, yeah. you know so I did really want to show these the, the, the mutual incomprehension of generations who were all supposedly fighting for the same t- thing but really had very little in common ground outside of the fact that they were part of the Republican movement in Northern Ireland you know so there's three quotes at the beginning there's Perry Como there's one from Nietzsche, yep. and there's one from Alistair Crowley. Yeah. Now, I don't know much about Crowley apart from his links with Jimmy Page and stuff like that, so why the Crowley quote? Well, one, again, it was about reality being up for grabs in general. It was about how it's the the basic thing, the ba- one of the basic things I love about magic that got me interested in magic yeah. is, again, it's a faith and language to transform reality. The way you reframe what is exactly in front of you transforms your relationship to it. And the big, the revelation I had with Alistair Crowley, I mean, I'm interested in, I'm very interested in Christianity, I'm very interested in Judaism, I'm very interested in uh, uh, Sufism, I read a lot about spiritual practice in general, it's something I'm very interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and magic's just one of the things I like. And what I love about magic in general was the way that I don't, my take on magic is not about escaping, is not about escaping into some sort of weird sort of a world of the spirits and ghosts and communicating with disincarnate entities or even like, you know, results magic, like try to like get yourself a girlfriend or get yourself some money or all this ah. crap. I, I was never interested in it. I don't indulge in any of that stuff. Um, what I was interested in was the kind of magic that reconciled you to reality. And Crowley has this beautiful line. He says, uh, uh, um, "The aim of the aim of science, no, sorry, the method of science, the aim of religion." And what that says to me is, science often seems to rejoice in desacralizing the, the world. Yeah. I love it when people say to you, "Oh, uh, you're only just a wee cocktail of chemicals." And I'm like, only? Just? If these chemicals are are creating consciousness, then my God, there's no way we can even denigrate that. And anyway, don't even try to tell me that you understand it. You know, you you don't even know how, most people don't even know how it likes how a light switch works never mind the claim that science have, have told us that this reality is just comp- is completely based on flesh and if it is based on flesh and yet consciousness comes out of that that says to me everything's alive that says to me rocks are alive that says to me there's nothing dead that exists mm-hmm. on some kind of level um, so what Crowley's thing did for me was he turned me into having reverence for what's right in front of me and having a spiritual approach to that and also for being able to say yes this is the big challenge I think that all spiritual systems come down to can you say yes yeah. can you say yes to this right in front of you without it being transmitted or transformed without uh, saying well I can say yes to it when I get to heaven 
or you know, or when the rapture comes, or when suffering is erased, mm -hmm. or when we have the dictatorship of the proletariat, you know what I mean? Or when there's no inequality, then I'll be able to say yes, that these are all utopian pipe dreams. What do we do in the meantime? How do we say yes now, even in the middle of suffering? So Nietzsche's interesting to me because Nietzsche was all about how do you sacralize suffering? Yeah, sure. It's such a big obsession. It's an obsession with every thinker and every religious system. But Nietzsche is so daring. Nietzsche dares to say yes, even in suffering, and to make even that sacred, because it's part of the price we pay for being yeah, alive, yeah. and every single person that is alive, one of the great Buddhist noble truths that all life is suffering, everyone suffers. How can we sacralise that and say yes to it? So what I wanted throughout the book, and as we build to this crescendo, Sammy's revelation in the end is, he's able to say, and what an ask, but it's the ask that we're, we're all asked, he's able to say, even in the end, all this suffering, so much loss, are we even any further forward than we ever were? What was all the sacrifice of those poor boys in the hunger strike even about? What did they actually achieve ultimately in the end? Well, there's a good Friday agreement and things like that, but there's the, all the terrible betrayals that have taken place, all the families that have, that have lost loved ones totally, and all the betrayal. And somehow he says to himself, do you know what? Even then, I'm able to say we played our parts. Yeah. And we played our parts 100%. And even despite all of that, I'm still going to say yes. Yeah. I'm still going to say yes. Ultimately, I'm still going to say yes. And I'm going to say, we, play, we, 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 we played the game. We played the game. There's that bit in the Bhagavad Gita where Arunya's on the battlefield and he throws down his sword and he says, I'm not going to fight anymore. And Lord Krishna appears and this kind of guy's above him. And he's like, what's going on? And he's like, look, every day I'm fighting as a father yeah. and a son and a family. I'm, I'm not playing the game anymore. And basically Krishna says, come on, that is true. But play your part. Yeah. Get back in the game, play it with us, don't know that's it, but still play your part and play it to the full. And so there's a great, there's a beautiful quote and Crowley at the start is about, is, um, he talks about being, Crowley has this thing in one of the holy books about being a, on a swan and a swan is travelling through eternity forever. And, he, and it's, it's kind of pointing somewhat about Runya, he says, what is the point? What's the point in us just travelling on forever? All the, 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 the suffering and the loss and the people we never see again. And he says... But is there not joy in the endless winging? Yeah, and, I, yeah. and I, it's so that's so beautiful. Is there not joy well, despite all of that? It's it, it's the continuation. It's the keeping going, and that's what Sammy does through. He, he, he keeps does. going, and you know the, the the ups and downs it has along the way. By the end, he says, "No, this is this is where I am now. That's who I was, and this is where I'm going to move on to." And in a way, he he rejects all the alter egos and the masculinity that he battled for yeah. ultimately, and he says. This is my story, and I'm going to say yes to every aspect of it. Even the aspects where I was less than what I should have been. Even the aspects where I, I behaved absolutely appallingly. Even the aspects where I chased after something else. I'm going to say yes to this. And there's a Nietzschean aspect to it, which is also an Irish aspect. When I said that the Irish can't forget, there's a moment he says, well, wait till I tell you. He claims he can forget, but then he says, wait till I tell you. Because yeah. he can't give up his, his own telling. And in a way, that's the Nietzschean thing of the eternal recurrence. So when um, Sammy gets to his point of yes, which is near the end of the book, the book cycles right round and begins yes, again. Absolutely. You know? And, and, and that's, this story constantly being told over and over, yep. the repetition. The Ouroboros, that's why the snake's coming through the book yeah. as well. It's the snake that eats its tail. It's Northern Ireland is an Ouroboros. It's people's lives as an Ouroboros, you know? And what I loved about it was there was nothing that was being dismissed. So there's seances, there's a kind of um, psychological connections, you know, um, uh, lots of spiritual stuff in there, and uh, it's Sammy's open to 
Yeah, all, totally. You know, even even the fact of running a comic book, which may seem weird, but to these guys, you think, well, they would never get involved with a comic, but, but he finds something in the reading of these comic books that changes his life and changes oh, his perspective. He does, and it brings it on that end of that way. So even early when they get into like Savvy Sword of Conan and stuff like that, yeah. you know, he reads one of the comics, and I love that little section, because that little section is a little bit of dear. It's, on the one hand, it's about the pressures of masculinity, but it's also about the ability to say yes as well to your course, to mm-hmm. your story. You know, and yeah, and also I wanted to have because in Belfast again, Belfast is populated by ghosts. It is populated by ghosts. There have been atrocities on all parts of the city. Buildings are raised and built back up again. So I wanted to feel in a walking through this city that is literally populated by ghosts as well. You know, and then I also wanted to connect that with. I think one of the single big moments of I wanted to have references to a lot of Irish modernism because I do love yeah. uh, that tradition as well and. One of the big things for me was, um, I think one of the central images of Irish modernism has got to be the end of the dead in Dubliners by um, James Joyce, yeah. with the snow falling down and all the dead and all the living. I wanted that as well. I wanted the dead to be in Belfast, still present. And what happens at the end is, it's no longer the snow that's falling down, as Sammy is, take, is captured and taken out the back of a... Um, a patrol car on an uh, army Land Rover and he has this hallucination where he rises up and of course he's been strangled round the throat and he's very close to that point where he urinates on himself basically but his vision is that he float this being strangled he actually floats up on this umbilical which is his umbilical to his own language his own way to speak his story for the first time and what does he does he urinates on the Ardoin and it becomes like the end of the of uh, Dubliners where it's, it's, the, it's, this, it's this beautiful gold, this beautiful golden blessing falling down on the living and the dead and he says in a shower of pish for the rest of them. You know what I mean? So I wanted to have that image as well, that the dead are there somehow being anointed. And then we have um, the dead zone, the place mm-hmm. of endless echoes, yeah. which which is this weird black hole that sort of links the, the story of the superhero comic story with what's actually happening in the Xbox, where these people are experiencing supernatural events, superhuman it, suffering. It didn't strike me at the time, but with you mentioning that, you know, there's no doubt that as, as Sari goes through Belfast, there are times he can't, or won't believe his eyes. He's not sure of what he's seen. Yes. He's not sure of who he's seen. Yes. And how could they be there? And how could they... so he's constantly kind of um, doubting himself as he goes along. Not just doubting who he is, but doubting his surroundings as well. And it forces him back on dialogues with himself. For the part he's about to deliver, he delivers that bomb into the Europa. And who knows what was going on during that whole sex sequence? I've got. I mean, I don't have a definitive reading. I've got. I've got my own theories sure, as sure. to what happened here, but. The ground is the carpet's pulled from under your feet regularly. It's very hard to know who's playing who, who's who's writing the story. You know who's generating, who, who started this story off, who's playing who, who are the pawns in that. But when Sammy goes into the Europa to deliver this bomb, he receives a telegram to himself addressed to his uh, Blakey and Vers Samuel, and he opens it and it's a blank letter. Yeah. So what 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 is he reading that? And then he has these phone calls at night where somebody's sitting silent on the end of it. Now it could be special branch doing this doing these weird psychological experiments. If so, they have the same result that they do get, and it's Sammy ends up sparking a dialogue with himself, yeah. which he believes is himself on the silent end of his phone. You know. Um, you were mentioning that, that it was influenced in many ways by Irish modernism. Then earlier on, you were talking about um, your. your uh, dad and family's use of punctuation or non-use of punctuation or whatever it is, and and that is throughout the book, but it never is never jarring. It absolutely fits. Again, going back to this word "true," it absolutely reigns true. I remember reading a section going, "I haven't encountered a full stop for for some time." <laughs> yeah, you, know? yeah, yeah, you don't yeah. realise it. And I think it is to do with that kind of 
the rhythm uh, of a of, of how the people speak and it, for me honestly the book always it comes back to that constantly it's how they express themselves with their language and with their words well you know because I never think of any of my novels as experimental novels although yeah. and I'm a huge fan of experimental literature yeah. and modernism but I never think of myself as working in that particularly because what I like I never I never want to write books that seem difficult I think they, I actually think there's a lot of difficulties with this book and there's a lot of challenges for a reader especially something that maybe the degree of violence and things like that but I always I come up this phrase where like I don't I don't think you should ever trip up over language because mm. I, I I love energy I love an accelerated uh, uh, um, uh, narrative. And so I never want you to stumble or trip up. I want you to rat rattle through that, that, that book mm -hmm. and never pause. And so, but I don't necessarily like clipped, um, that, you know, that, that sort of Hemingway yeah, or even Raymond Carver. Or just, yeah. I just don't, it doesn't appeal to me. It's yeah. not me. I, I like much. So I came up with this idea of a, a, of a sort of... Um, a sort of rapturous transparency in a way and that it's transparent but it's still elegiac and it catches you up and things like that and I wanted to experiment in language ways to introduce people to experiments in language which they naturally do themselves yeah. without thinking of themselves as being fans of avant-garde one of my favourite bits that I really enjoy and like is when they have Tommy's trying to read a story from a porn mag you know and he tries to read it and his reading of it it comes out with the strangest avant-garde poetry ever you know and I like that I like we transform these base things this worthless literature or something into the magical retellings just by filtering it through somebody who's even got a capacity for that type of language so language was really important to me and I wanted to get raptures and for instance or sections like you know, they go and see The Clash yeah. and they take LSD, so I wanted to have an LSD section in it. Sure. And I really got into that section where it unfolds, like, like yeah. what it feels like to be tripping, but also when one reality invades, you get a glimpse of The Clash, you get a glimpse of their fathers appearing, all these different ideas and this sort of thing. So again, it was all about different ways of telling. That scene almost sums up the book in some way because you, you, you come and go into stark reality. I mean, yeah. really kind of like, Oh God, I can't believe I'm, I'm dealing with this. And then, then it'll, it'll kind of start to melt at the edges, if you know what I mean. And yeah. you'll, you'll end up with somewhere else. It's also very funny. And I think a lot of that comes from the language as well. Because the way these guys... Um, it's, yeah, it's patter, it's banter. It's, it's you know, uh, um, there's, particularly there's a scene in Glasgow, which is a classic scene <laughs> in Glasgow. And uh, when I read that, I went... Oh, I've heard about this place. I should say. Oh, you explain it. I mean, it is based on it's based on stories I heard about, like a certain um, uh, a certain B and B up near the art school in Glasgow. I actually, had some American friends stay in there, and they did report back that there were these absolutely crazed, uh, mad sort of, um, unionists singing songs that try to get sing songs going about Bobby Sands with the people who were just on holiday there, and weird rumours about orgies and all this kind of stuff. And I love, and it made sense. I mean, it totally made sense to me. And at that point, I thought I wanted them to go on the run because I wanted to talk a little bit about sectarianism in Glasgow as well. And then yeah, obviously yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They, they go down to London on the back of that as well. So I wanted to have all these little secret cells dotted about this underground in a way that was still there, that was outside of Belfast itself in a way, you know? Yeah, because that interested me coming from Glasgow and not knowing the Belfast side of things was that they grew up same time as you. So it was everywhere in Glasgow including which, you know, primary school you went to, and the yep. first, first songs I, think I ever remember learning were sectarian songs, probably, mm. yeah, on the playground. I believe it. And uh, 
Well, that was funny because I had that interesting background because my, my dad's an Irish Catholic from the Ardoy and my mum's a Scottish Protestant. Yeah. I didn't go to a Catholic school. I went to a Protestant school. I went to a Calder uh, Vale and Airdrie. And yeah, and everyone was, you know, making the bayonets and they all they, they would sing all these songs and they all went, went everyone was singing the sash and went to see the Orange Walk uh-huh. and all that. And so I was getting both these sides all the time going I up there. I never got it. My family were not, didn't give a monkeys or that at all. Just not into it. Mm. But, but it was in the schools. And oh, it was. It was, was, it was absolutely I, entrenched. Mm. And uh, what I was thought about, well, why do you care so much about this when it's all it's not happening in your? And I think you get to that by that scene in Glasgow because it's actually fun for these people. They're having oh, you know, I... they're sing songs. It could be right. The, the next song's going to be do your you know your, your Billy Connolly routine or do your whatever it is. That's what they're doing. They're having a party. They're having an orgy. But they're having it, a yeah, party. I, I wanted to underline as well that a lot of the guys in the book. I, I like some of the sections which I just present as interviews. You know, it'll be like McManus who never speaks, so he's always a blank. And you've got Tommy and Sammy's asking a question. And at one time, Jesus shows up in the conversation as well. Well, he remains silent. And some of these, there's a conversation which I really love. And when I, when the characters were so alive to me, I just was having fun with them. And I was like, these characters are alive. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to ask Tommy questions and see what he says. So I didn't have an idea what he would say. So I would just think up questions and I would sit and I'd wait for his response. And I was killing myself laughing. And one of the things, you know, it was, it was so enjoyable, but one of the things I began to realise with Tommy is the only history he actually knows is history of the Troubles. Mm-hmm. Everything else you ask him, he, he either makes it up, guesses at it, or has no idea what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So during this interview, the only solid facts are like how many people are killed in Bloody Sunday, when was the Battle of the Boyne, who led the, 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 the Easter Uprising. He can act them because... But ask him anything else, where the birds hibernate over the winter, he's like bottom of ponds and rivers. Like how did he how did he um breathe in that case? He's like through their gills. Name three paintings by your man Picasso. He's like nowhere known, bow of plums in the face. He's he's literally making up this noise. Yeah. But the only knowledge he doesn't make up, the only knowledge he knows, even out of history, is the history that I was troubled. Yeah. And that was the same with people growing up. I was like, these people couldn't even tell you about the Holocaust mm-hmm. or the Second World War, but they can still talk about, you know, you know the, 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 when, the, the exact dates of the battles of, of King Billy. Yeah. You know, yeah, it was yeah, the only, right, everyone else they were ignorant of. So I wanted to like, underline that a little bit, how they're creatively inventing everything else. But the only thing they've sold, they've got to hang on to is the history of the Troubles, you know? So this is Memorial Device setting a real place here, you know, and you kind of created this world. Here, again, it's a kind of world that you created, and is that something that you're really interested in, in, in doing, is taking taking a place you know well, um, that you travel you around and you could take people to places and say, I'm going to give this a twist that no one expects? Yeah, I mean, that's, that is my whole thing. I want to show people, and I guess it maybe comes from, from magic and things like that as well, I want to show people the absolute magic that's, uh, that's around them right now that they might not even think of it, even in very difficult circumstances. And, and I think one way to really do that is see if you use place names, see if you name streets, you name areas, you name up things like this. It, it grounds it. It grounds magic and reality. So um, I can't ever see myself... I mean, who knows when I'm not going to... Let's not... I can't see myself ever setting an entire book in a place that I made up. Mm-hmm. You know, although in my next book coming up, there is a, there's a science fiction section stuff, which is obviously a fantasy type thing. But again, it's very, very grounded in, in the world that we exist in. And that's totally key for me because my whole thing, what did books do for me? Books books turned me back to my own reality and made it magic. 
and they made me think anything was possible where I was right now. And so I'm constantly attracted to the places where I can make this happen. And yes, I wanted to use actual street names, actual places, places that you can go. And again, perhaps like you did with Memorial Device, why I had the index, why I had the appendices was where you can go, you can go to the exact place where these things happened and perhaps get closer to the psychic truth by the, of that area by visiting that place. I'm in love with that idea. Yeah, I think... When people, you know, you're saying don't see yourself as an experimental writer, and I think you're, you're probably right. What you've done w with everything that you've put in both your books is there's an absolute reason for it being there. It's not done to go, oh, this will make people stand look or anything like that. You Gone know, it's that's what I got from Memorial Device, and that's what I got from this as well. It's perhaps a good time to do it. There's a conversation that is had about the purpose of art. You know, and says, well, oh, it's to scare the shite out of you, but no, no, it's to illuminate. So, I mean, mm -hmm. what do you think? Have you come to any conclusions yourself? Yes, I have. I mean, one of my... my I, I'm, I, what I believe... The, 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 if art had, I don't think art needs to necessarily have a function but if it does have a function the function it has best of all, I think, ultimately, the best art is art should cure you of art. Mm. And what I mean by that is art should po point you back to your own reality, your own life in all its specifics and you should look to that with, with all the attention that you gave to art, give that to your own life. So when you're creating, really you've created two novels which is about your life and your family and your background and all, your culture for want of a better term and is that what you're saying? Like you well, don't, no, don't, no. Don't, don't try and look... You don't need to go and look elsewhere because sometimes it's all there for you. It is all there. And it's, I mean, it's not these not these novels are fictional. They are totally yeah, yeah, made yeah, up yeah. in one way. So maybe using some ideas and things that I had in my life to extrapolate somewhere else to show the magic that no, was going to there. No, that's what I meant. I you mean, more I mean? of what you're doing is you're taking the culture, the people and the places that you know and you're creating something artistic. And making magic of it. I would like to think that's definitely true because... Um, why do we all love Rimbaud so much? Why do literary people and, and readers and writers love Rimbaud so much still? I mean, I love Rimbaud. He's the absolute key for me. And I think one of the reasons I love him so much was Rimbaud cured himself of art at such a young age. Mm. And then he walked off into life. And what I would love to do eventually, I don't know what's possible because I do feel like I'm possessed by demons and I literally cannot stop writing. But I would like to be able to write my way out of literature right out the other side yeah. where I didn't need to write anymore and I was back and I'd written myself into life that's what I think art should do art cures you of art ultimately and points you back to life that's fascinating absolutely fascinating last time you spoke you said I think talking of what you've just said there you had about six books already done uh -huh. Um, can you say anything about the next one? Well, I have more now because I have, you know, they're still, they're still standing on the shelf. So and I hope keep, it's a long, long life. I, I hope, well, you know, I'm also hoping that maybe, yeah, I mean, I, I still wonder if one day I could just walk away. I mean, my favourite, what I love about writers and fascinates me are writers that disappear. Writers, because mm. I'm like, were they able to disappear finally? You know, they wrote themselves to the point where they're like, I came, I did what I came here to do. Now yeah, I'm going to yeah. go and live in a little hut. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean and I love that idea I'd love my, to be able to do that but I have to be honest it shows no signs of abating and I'm writing like a maniac probably worse than ever I say worse <laughs> than ever but I'm probably writing better than ever yeah. but I'm writing more and I'm, I'm more possessed than I've ever been and I literally can't stop and it is getting to, I, I still write every day and it's getting to the point where my favourite moment of the day is when I sit down at that desk I pour myself a little mezcal I light that candle in front of the picture of Perry Como and I'm off and it's got to the point where it feels like dictation I, I've got to the point now I mean I've been writing probably daily writing for almost 12 years it's yeah, got to the point yeah. now where it's, it's a matter of faith I have faith that it's always going to work and it does seem to work at this point but my new book 
um, on the subject of that is that it will be the next book to come out on uh, Faber. It's huge. It's a quarter of a million words. So it's the biggest, it's biggest thing I've, I've ever attempted. It's probably the most ambitious thing I've ever tried. And very, I mean, I was going to say very on like the, the first two books and, and sort of subject matter it is. But of course it's written by me. Yeah. And so it's going to have, you know, the, the, the things, the energy, the, the playable language, the multiple voices, things like this. It's called Monument Maker. And it's set, on the whole, it's set in the area of the Great Cathedrals in Ile de France. And it's a long-term meditation on religion, and on religious art, specifically on the cathedrals and stone statuary, because I am I'm very very interested in churches and church history, right. English parish churches, but also particularly uh, uh, Gothic French cathedrals and particularly Romanesque sculpture. I think Romanesque sculpture is one of the absolute apexes of of the history of art completely, and I've become completely besotted and obsessed by it. In the past few years, I've been collecting books about it, reading stuff about it, things like that. And um, as I was writing this book, I started writing this book. Started writing this book. It's also like a love story. Mm-hmm. It's a form of a love story about eccentric architects who form a sort of strange penitential religious cult. And on the, uh, but they also become writers. Two of them, two of the guys who are in this cult, uh, invent a science fiction pen name for themselves. So in the book, there's also the science fiction novel that these guys wrote, and there's also a historical novel that they claim to have found that also may be written by them as well. And then so it leaps back and forth with all these different approaches, kind of thing. But um, the big deal is about. I won a, um, a Robert Louis Stevenson fellowship. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, um, last year, last summer. And I was working on this book, Monument Maker, set in the Ile de France, and um, my wife actually pointed out to me, she was like, have you seen this Scottish Book Trust have a Robert Louis Stevenson thing? You should apply for it, it seems like you qualify for it. And I looked at it and I was like, holy shit, it's set in the Ile de France. It, it's set, you, you get this fellowship, it's where I have weirdly set my, randomly yeah, set yeah, my yeah. book. So I applied, said, I'm writing this book, set here. And I've never visited any of the great cathedrals before. I'm, I'm, this is all, and I'm, this is this. This was the first book where I'd started writing it with no knowledge. Right. I, I'd been teaching myself about Romanesque sculpture, about the history of the Gothic cathedrals and things like that, uh, and about religious art in general. But I'd been doing it for my distance, and so I, I won. I won the Robert Louis Stevenson Fellowship, and I got to spend supposed to be a month, but I actually used my own coin to stay on longer because mm-hmm. I was so possessed by this book, and I I knew I would finish Monument Maker if I stayed. If I did six weeks, yeah, solid, I was going to do it. So went to um, you spend his time in this little village, uh, Gresselong, uh, um, where like like Strin- Robert Louis Stevenson stayed, but August Strindberg had stayed, and the composer Delius, who became a big who, who plays actually a real large role, okay, in, in in the new book also. And I would spend my mornings. I got in the morning. I would write in the afternoon. There was bikes you could get, and in the afternoons I would cycle to all the cathedrals and churches mm-hmm. locally by visiting them all. Then I would come back at night and I'd write again. I never took notes. I never, ever take notes, right. ever. Because I believe that what's meant to stay, stays, and what comes out, when it's meant to come out. So I'd cycle back and then I'd write about the, my experience with the cathedrals and stuff like that. And it really was one of the most magically intense, hard-working times I've ever had. I was totally immersed in the book. And when I came back in the summer, I'd finished Monument Maker. Fantastic. You know? So that's the next... Big one. Oh, I can't wait to read that. That sounds amazing. <laughs> uh, and I would say, um, I hope you'll be writing for some time soon, but it sounds as though you will be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> uh, David, thanks so much for doing this again. It's great to talk to you once more. Thank you, Alistair. Brought to talk. And uh, we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Cheers. Mm-hmm.